Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm the host of the podcast series The Feminist City. This is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and in the series we think about cities, our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city. My guest today is Prem Chandavarkar, a Bangalore-based architect. He was also the former executive director of Srishti School of Art, Design and Technology. He writes extensively and lectures on architecture, urbanism, art, cultural studies and education. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Prem. My pleasure. It is uh, really lovely to have you here. I think um one of the things that has been that has occupied public interest I think for the last year and more has been the Central Vista project, the proposed redevelopment of it. Um so I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the central vista redevelopment project the redesign and how it sort of seeks to construct public space itself uh, well the first uh, one heard of it was a public notice in september 2019 um to uh, inviting ex- expressions of interest from architects to design uh, the central vista to redevelop the whole central vista which is uh not just the stretch between uh, rashtrapati bhavan and india gate but also spaces to the side which cover parliament house and uh, the the brief this was really a tender it wasn't a design competition okay and uh, there was no real brief it it left everything up to the architects which means an architect is supposed to design decide on what the nature of our democracy is uh what the nature of heritage is and uh, it it didn't really in, uh, uh, there were some uh, specifications of the kind of architect who was who was eligible to enter and uh, strangely that didn't call for any expertise in evaluating democracy it didn't call for any skills in heritage conservation a lot of other skills are stipulated in great detail but these were not there although this is a grade 1 heritage precinct it's legally yeah. mandated as one yeah uh so eventually six firms uh, were shortlisted to participate and all this was done in a tremendous hurry within one month uh, of floating the inquiry the architects had submitted and uh, and the firm was selected uh, hcp uh, design was selected as as the as the winner uh the and then it's been proceeding at a very fast pace after that and uh, it was just held up because a lot of citizens objected and filed some petitions in the supreme court yeah but the things that were problematic about it is one uh, nothing is in the public domain even today there are no plans for discussion in the public domain uh, so and and this this is this is the space that redoes the heart of india's democracy so one would imagine it abides by the highest democratic principles yeah and uh, but nothing is in the public domain there has been no debate on the project specifically in parliament so uh, so the fact that they deciding the fate of parliament and the seat of government without consulting parliament they are claiming that it has happened because some stray references to a new parliament building have been made but there has been no debate on this uh, specific project in parliament and you got to realize that this is not just a you know 
a functional container for governmental space. It, it should have, it should reflect the principles of our democracy. So yeah. w- what kind of ideas about the relationship between government and people should it uh, put forward? Uh, moreover, what about the functioning of parliament? There are ru- rules that were drafted to uh, uh, on how parliament should function, and those rules have not really been substantively modified for decades. Uh, one needs to look at how, uh, you know, a, a, a parliamentarian, what facilities they need. You know, it's, it's a complex world today. A parliamentarian needs to be backed by research staff. Yeah. Uh, they say those kind of provisions were made, but what should those provisions be? Though that Those kind of things should also be uh, discussed in parliament. Really, there should have been a discussion in parliament which should have led to a design proposal. Yeah. So, so that has that has not been done. Uh, the public is not consulted. There are no public hearings. Uh, they have drastically reduced the quantum of public space within Central Vista. Uh, uh, over eighty acres of land have been shifted from public, semi-public use to governmental use. Now they they are claiming that there is compensatory work being done for that that they're going to convert north and south block into uh, museums uh, that there's going to be a 50 acre public park carved out of uh, the president's estate. Uh, first, firstly, the changes of land use that have been notified to implement the project do not reflect this. So we do, do not know uh, how uh, strong this. Uh, you know the, the 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 how definitive these proposals are, and because you know, will they then say, oh, there's, there's a security problem? We can't put a museum so close to Rashtrapati Bhavan, Bhavan and the PM's residence. Yeah. Uh, the public park that's carved out of the president's estate is actually entered from the west of uh, Central Vista, whereas the main vista, is, uh, sorry, west of Rashtrapati Bhavan, whereas the main vista is to the east. So this, so what is the public domain will not be affected by creating public space that is accessed of a different road. Mm-hmm. So, so, but and along the main vista itself, all the public, whatever public spaces have been there, have been removed and they're completely lined by governmental buildings. Yeah. So, so the lack of public space, the lack of public character, really a project like this should try and make a space like this more public so that it uh, represents a closer relationship between government and citizens that is not being done the disregard of parliament in the process the disregard of the public that they feel they can do this and they don't even have to disclose the plans in public uh, this yeah. these are all troubling things and if if this can be done to what is the center of the democracy what kind of precedent does it set for other cities uh, there are yeah. there are other problems also. The changes of land use we feel hasn't gone through a proper process. Uh, they held so-called public hearings, which uh, had to be virtual in yeah, this time and age. Although the first set were physical, but in, in the public hearings they invited people who had filed written objections, and they just allowed them to read out their objections and say something. There was no response. They said that this is just yeah. to hear you. There is no, we are not going to give any response. And uh, that's the, the, I mean, then the, it, it's a farce of a public hearing because the whole idea of a public hearing is to have a dialogue. Otherwise, a written yeah. submission should have, should have sufficed. Why, why have a, why go through the farce of having people just read out their written submissions? 
So, and then in the end, it said after hearing all objections, whatever the original proposal is, is, is legally notified. So, so there are problems in that process. Uh, there are problems in the whole relationship it constructs. Uh, so it does not really, it, it, it seems to convey an attitude that whatever the government wants to do, it will do. It can disregard parliament. It can disregard the public in the process. Thank you so much for that. I mean, a comprehensive but succinct uh, introduction to this issue. I think as you were speaking, uh, I mean, it was also alarming to me to sort of, um, you know, just to hear the the numerous problems that this sort of brings up. Like you said, even from the inception of this project, I think there has not been scrutiny or I don't think that it's it was ever debated in the public domain in terms of whether the rationale for uh, exploring or pursuing this project itself because I think um, I mean uh, I think last year I had attended uh, you know Madhav Raman had sort of talked about how the the need for a bigger parliament is something that will sort of keep coming up as the you know the population of the country keeps growing that there are different methods that one could adopt before you know sort of uh, going for the redevelopment project itself but I think all of those things were sort of circumvented because there was never a debate right and the second thing I think as you were speaking I was thinking about was the numerous issues of uh, procedural problems whether it was the the heritage uh, questions, because if I understand it correctly, Delhi has a Delhi Urban Art Commission. There is also, uh, I think, a Heritage Conservation Committee that has to sort of look into any changes that will be made. And I think there were procedural problems there as well, as well as, I think, significant environmental guidelines. And as you mentioned, changes in land use. So both the uh, debate about whether such a project is necessary, especially I think one of the things that a lot of people were feeling is also when there's a pandemic that has been going on and, you know, everybody has been uh, really focused on this. Is this project timely at this moment? But yeah, I think these were questions. And I think one of the things that was really disappointing about the Supreme Court ruling is also where it held that what you described as this farce of a public hearing or public consultation or a process was not deemed to be significant enough to uh, cast question on this entire project itself. And which is where I think the dissenting opinion sort of uh, stands out to me in terms of what does it mean to have a right to public participation in the country. And I think the other thing that I was, you know, whether I was reading about it or listening to you, it just seemed like such a technocratic exercise where people are, people of the country are passive observers of this process rather than active participants. And I was just curious if you could just talk to us a little bit about just where this kind of, uh, this, this kind of process, because I think urban planning in India itself is not necessarily you know, incorporates public participation. And I think what we see in the Central Vista project is even the minimum uh, safeguards that are kept or the procedural requirements for public participation were not uh, followed. So I was just curious about, uh, yeah, where does, where, what does this kind of planning regime come from? What exactly happened in the Central Vista project? And what does this mean with the recent Supreme Court ruling on the implications of the right to public participation in urban, in the context of urban planning in India? 
Well, uh, Sneha, this this really boils down to asking ourselves the question of are we a democracy, and if so, what kind of a democracy are we? Uh, are, are we? Uh, uh, fine, we have elections, but what happens to the relationship between citizen and government between elections? Is the citizen just supposed to be a passive bystander? Um, I would argue no. There is there should be uh, uh, an involvement. And uh, the, the, the most disappointing thing to me about the, the court judgment is how it dealt with the question of are we a participatory democracy, uh, which, the, which the dissenting judgment very clearly answered yes, uh, very, uh, very strongly. But uh, unfortunately, the majority judgment, and it's just two is to one, we have to remember, uh, decided that yeah. we are not. And they made a, uh, the, the, there's this common mis, uh, you know, error that is used to argue against being a participatory democracy as though a participatory democracy means that everything has to be decided by consensus. You know, that uh, the whole public has to agree to something. It's designed by referendum. No, that's not it. Obviously, that is that is very uh, inefficient to say that everything has to happen by total consensus. But you have to put things out in the light of the day and make citizens believe they are participants with agency and autonomy. And that's how government should work. Uh, whereas, whereas clearly, uh, the court took a view that took this sort of wrong view that uh, participatory democracy is government government by consensus, which is wrong. You're just saying that it, you mm. create the opportunity to participate. It doesn't mean that you can disregard the citizen. And unfortunately, mm. the court paid no attention to an even deeper question, which is okay, aren't, aren't we at least a parliamentary democracy? Which, yeah. which our constitution stipulates that we are, but but yet a project like this would go through without prior analysis and debate in parliament that would define what the design brief of such a project should be. Who has, who has decided what that design brief should be? It's a bunch of small people in closed circles who are doing it in secrecy and who are not putting their reasoning and their conclusions out in the public domain. Uh, that yeah. that that is the most most troubling thing about this whole project. Uh, the fact that we have a government that believes it can do what it likes, it it it, it believes the citizens should just accept whatever it is. And you know, I I, th I think the political scientist Nilanjan Sarkar described it very well when he said we moved from a politics of vikas to a politics of vishwas. Uh, we, are, we are expected to function just by vishwas or trust in the government. And, and, and once we are in this mode of vishwas, what that it means is rather than the politician or the trying to please the citizenry, the citizenry has to please the politician. It has to adjust to the politician. That you're, you're the faithful your politics of vishwas requires that you be a faithful follower, not that you be a a, a, a sort of critical thinking citizen with autonomy and agency. So we have to ask, what's the resilience of our democracy then if we don't have this, uh, you know, don't believe in granting agency to citizens? No, absolutely. Um, I think this was of particular interest to me, especially the podcast was titled The Feminist City Podcast, because I think uh, we discussed this before, I mean, a year ago almost, but one of the things when my research I was interested in was thinking about feminist urban planning as, you know, what does feminist urban planning mean? And how do we think about urban planning that 
places women girls children basically all the people who don't feature i think in thinking about planning and city you know making itself and i one of the fundamental principles is the idea that the space is the the experts on the space are the people who use the space and in fact going much beyond merely public consultation the feminist urban planning method sort of advocates participatory planning where people are active partners and drive uh, the the this kind of planning process itself and in many ways this ruling goes completely antithetical which is why i think even though Uh, i mean like you mentioned the entire process has been mired in secrecy and it's it's deeply undemocratic in the in, in even the the very basic norms of you know public disclosure public consultation as well as accountability seem to have been subverted and i was just i'm mean, thinking about what this would mean for then uh i mean i think i i just i would just like to draw something you mentioned in a, i mean I, i was listening to one of your podcast episodes uh, earlier which i'll actually put a link to in the readings uh on paradigms of urban development in terms of you know there are so many people in the city that are invisible in terms of how we imagine what our city to look like so i was just curious if you could just comment on that in terms of this kind of process how does how does it affect uh the i don't know the right to the city for a significant section of the population in the city who don't actually uh find space in the existing planning processes themselves yeah uh i think what we have the, the problem we have in india is that we don't have an imagination of the city we tend to locate culture in the village and look at the city as a purely technical entity and if you uh, look at any urban plan in any major city in india you see that it's purely functional driven uh, there is no idea to uh, display the culture of the city to construct a sense of neighborhood uh, to acknowledge a sense of history and heritage uh, i mean yeah, heritage as a precinct not heritage as monument centric so so we we've, we've had no sort of imagination of the city and um uh th- th- there's there's a seminal paper by ananya roy on why the indian city cannot plan itself and yeah. and she talks about the fact that we have a large urban poor who cannot afford the spaces of the city and and you you got to although she doesn't mention this point specifically you got to remember that the poor have survived in the indian city because master planning is weak both in ideation and implementation and that has granted them the space to uh, adopt their own informal means of tenure that allow them to survive uh, yeah. but uh, as uh, roy points out informality is also is not just the province of the poor it's also practiced by the elite whose transactions yeah. on land on deals and the you know the elephant in the in the room is a connection between urban land and political fundraising and yeah. and and because of that what we do is we don't have a systematic process of planning we have what's called an idiom of urbanization and that idiom uh, involves putting forward isolated projects that represent an impulse towards modernity yeah 
So we'll have an isolated project like the Vista, or we'll have a project like a flyover, or we'll have our Statue of Unity, you know, the, all these kinds of things, or the bullet train. Or, yeah, we, we tend to propose those kind of projects as we are moving towards modernity. But that, yeah. re that reduces modernity to an aesthetic spectacle. Whereas modernity, we have to remember, was an ethical project that demanded inclusive freedom, that we have to recognize everybody. And, uh, and that has not happened. So one is we construct forms of the city uh, to which large sections are invisible. So, so, yeah. so there, are, there are economic barriers. Uh, we uh, do not, uh, if, if you look at the economics of a city and connect it to land prices and you can, you can look at the connection between median incomes and land prices, you'll find that somewhere between 30 and 50% of the city cannot afford to locate themselves on a land use plan. So they mm -hmm. have to live outside the paradigm of master planning. Uh, if you talk about women and just look at the very prosaic aspect of women's safety, uh, women's safety is provoked by uh, what uh, Jane Jacobs famously called eyes on the street, to have a vibrant public realm where there are always people out there. And, and therefore, uh, you know, because publicity constrains people, they, someone is always observing them and they're always eyes on the street, there's a likelihood to, you know, for greater safety. Absolutely. And uh, but we don't follow that because uh, eyes on the street require mixed use zoning so that uh, a zone, you know, has a combination of offices, workplaces and houses so that there's always someone there. I mean, you create a space that's just offices and it will be deserted after hours and on weekends. So uh, so, you, so you need that kind of mixture. So like Central Vista, for example, has removed public institutions from the main Vista and converted it all into uh, government offices, which means that you will not have eyes on the street. So the boat club lawns, which are a vibrant public space, therefore can now become more dangerous because they'll be deserted on weekends. Yeah. So... Uh, but the other aspect of uh, the paradigm of urban planning is because we have this idiom uh, of, you know, where modernity is just aesthetic and we put these projects as aesthetic spectacles by which you can lay a claim to modernity, is that aesthetic is aimed at a specific constituency. It's not necessarily aimed at everybody. And it wishes to please that constituency. So which is why the needs of the poor, the needs of women, and those who have become invisible are not targets of this aesthetic spectacle, you know, of, of modern uh, projects of modernity. So uh, as someone wrote about, as I think Kanchi Kohli and uh, Manju Menon wrote about Central Vista, is that it represents the fact that it, mis uh, you know, it uh, mistakes development projects for development. I mean, thank you so much for saying that. I think that does clarify in terms of... Um... I mean, when I think about what this means, even as you mentioned, something that I was struck by is this lack of imagination as to what what should the city look like or feel like and who does it belong to is just so absent because even this entire process just seems so technocratic. The questions about how should a particular space be constructed, who should use it and what should there be, uh, you know, what are the kinds of people whose 
whether it's the trajectories or mobilities or you know the functions in the space should be taken into account and in thinking about it just seem completely absent and the other thing that i was struck by is one this kind of i mean just how easily environmental and um heritage conservation norms have been subverted and like violated and that has been normalized in terms of you know how these are not significant enough and i was also struck by the fact that i mean in india i don't think that there is an understanding of urban heritage right i think heritage seems to sort of harken back to something really old or uh, i don't know whatever the the amasr act the ancient monuments and archaeological sites and ruins act i think the full form is and basically which has that limit on um, if a building is 100 years old then it will be considered something that is worthy of protection as opposed to more like like as i think as you pointed out a heritage precinct or more recent buildings maybe but in the way in which it has come to mean for people in the moment and how it has value and i think which also sort of ties into a particular ideology of development right because to me i think these are not questions of um i think to me it's a question of ideology in terms of what does development mean for a certain section of the city and what does it mean for the other and i guess the last question that i think i sort of want to uh, ask you is in terms of what is what is then uh, an everyday citizens role in terms of you know constructing the city how do we then in this in this in this kind of setup where you know something one of the most important projects for the country uh, you see these are the kinds of procedures that are adopted which i think is also i think i'd like to just add that you know in 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 many of procedural democracies often because you can't determine the outcome the process the importance on the process is is for a specific reason because adopting this kind of process is what ensures that the outcomes are democratic so i mean i'm just curious because both as an architect and someone you know who writes extensively about cities uh, what would you leave people to th- thinking about in terms of how do you, how do we then claim our space in the city and how do we participate in this process uh one of the things uh, for the first thing i i would boil it down to two major questions one is if a large segment of our population is rendered invisible by the current paradigm of planning can i stay silent because i am not one of those people i am unaffected by it and i think people have to realize that they are affected by it uh for example if women are not concerned and we create unsafe cities then everybody is affected uh and and you know the violence against women is not restricted to a particular class or community it can hit anyone uh we have to realize that because uh, there's so many people are condemned to lead uh, live outside the paradigm of master planning uh we do not have the spatial continuity and coherence to run efficient urban services so for example our water and power systems as a Uh, suffer from what are euphemistically called transmission and distribution losses that are 35 to 40%. So so the fact mm-hmm. is that if I turn on my tap can I reliably expect water is actually tied to the prevalence of slums in the city. So we we have to realize these things and we have to realize people are there in slums not because they choose to be but because they're forced to be. 
So, so I think that is one question. Uh, the second question we have to ask ourselves is, are we just passive consumers of urban functions or are we autonomous thinking, independent agents with our own creativity and will? Uh, and if you answer, you're just a passive consumer, what kind of self-worth do you believe you have? And if you want to really truly have self-worth in which you value your own creativity and autonomy, then you have to think about how you display that creativity and autonomy in the relationship with the space that you live in. And um, mm -hmm. uh, th there's a French philosopher, Michel Dussuto, who said that, uh, you know, there are two ways you can have relationships with urban space. Uh, with a city and one is based on space the idea that there is a proper set of places and this is the strategy of the powerful and and they can afford to adopt this strategy because they've got the kind of spaces they want and they believe them to be proper but the other is based on time uh, which are cleverly based incursions into space well-timed incursions to to get what you want uh, so that's what the, you know, the world of the hawker is. He moves into an officially sanctioned urbanism and then moves out. Uh, and, and that's just one kind of example. But it's how the vast majority of people in the city live. And, and we have to start thinking about these time-based incursions and how we mark urban space with our memory. And I think we have to start doing that as a collaborative project. We have to do that with fellow citizens. When we, when we, see, when we see a problem in the city, I think a problem is we immediately confront the vertical axis between citizen and government, and we try and lobby with the government or we file a court case or something like that. Uh, but there's an asymmetry of power that's weighted against the citizen. So it's very difficult to do anything. Uh, whereas actually, yeah. if you look at lateral connections between citizens and start building this kind of thinking and then taking this thinking into the public domain, uh, sort of uh, putting our bodies in space, which hopefully once the pandemic is past us, we will find easier to do. Then we start marking spaces with our memories. And we have mm -hmm. to look look at rituals of occupation of space where we make it a certain way. So, mm -hmm. so I think uh, we have to start turning our attention towards that absolutely yeah i think um uh what you were describing in terms of time-based incursions into space i was actually only thinking about queer spaces i think one of the ways in which you know there's queer communities around the world including in bangalore i think i mean it's, it's there in every city has been able to sort of exist by making certain spaces their own and i think i don't think that um I mean, participating in the city is is has so much to do with beyond engaging with the government. And as you said, I think it's it's really important because I think this is particularly to me it's a feminist issue because at the end of the day, when when there are a group of people who are making decisions for everyone else and they're doing it in a secretive manner, I, I mean, more often than not they're not actually thinking about women or queer people or people with disability or, you know, I, I mean, there are so many categories of people who form almost the majority of the city, but don't sort of ever get either uh, 
a step or a foot into the door in terms of where these decisions are made and i think this process or the approach or the podcast is also sort of dedicated to thinking about how do we decentralize democracy how do we ensure that people who are experts in their own lives and in their own spaces get a say in you know the in in, in bigger decisions whether it's their neighborhoods or you know in terms of something as big as the central vista project uh but Was, I just I mean, just a, just a couple, couple of points which i believe are important based on what you said i think the the queer community example is really powerful uh, because they establish their presence as a community it's not one revolutionary queer person who you know who fought for rights or something and and once they established that presence it it became a little more difficult to dislodge Uh, but this uh, the second thing when you talk about the feminist city and you know if you look at this idea of defining proper space um i don't know if you've seen a film called bachelor girls it's a documentary on how single women have problem finding a place to live in to rent in mumbai yeah, i know i've heard of it haven't seen it but yeah okay but you, you see the re, uh, the opposition to single women from residents and you see there that there, there is a real fear of female autonomy and agency it's a profound fear and they see in single women the representation of that autonomy and agency and they see it as problematic and which is why they resist them and they they try and cast it in moral codes but you have to think of the vulnerability of the proper in that process why do they feel that fear they feel that fear because they're vulnerable because they realize they are they're using some artificial construct as what is proper they're not using the resilience of inclu- inclusivity and democracy for stability that they're, they're clinging to these definitions so so i think we have we have to both sides have, but uh, have to sort of recognize that vulnerability and learn how to you know either deal with it or how to confront it no that's thank you so much for saying that and i think that makes a lot of difference i think i, I mean somehow uh, uh, also i mean as you were discussing this i mean something about you know the urban atomized existence that i think a lot of people have talked about i mean the way forward is actually through building communities of care and also political mobilization in urban spaces because i think one of the most amazing things i think what like i experienced say during the ca and rc protests was just the sheer number of people who flooded cities in mm-hmm. terms of young people old people everybody and that just gave me incredible hope in terms of that for hopeful for me to think about how do we then mobilize in that manner for Uh, much much more yeah fights like central vista project in terms of what do we then do when there is no debate in the parliament when there is no you know uh, where the democratic safeguards have not been sort of followed and so it just then becomes about all of us i think speaking up and organizing i guess and i think that's actually a fantastic way to end this amazing conversation uh, thank you so much prem for speaking to me it's always okay. such a pleasure I will just for those listening I will include readings and basically whatever we discussed in the reading list so that you can um uh take a look at it just inform yourself of the background and um and please follow the podcast and listen to our previous episodes especially I think this conversation harkens back to the first episode on the introduction to feminist urbanism itself and in terms of what it does it mean to sort of imagine you know a, a city that belongs to you